Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Dee Nash from Guthrie, Oklahoma. And I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana. Hey, Dee. Hey, Carol. How's it going? It's good. Yeah. We're getting ready to be icy in Oklahoma. Icy, icy, icy. We're getting ready for snow, but it's not going to arrive until it's done dumping all over you, and then it's going to swing up through the upper Midwest, and we're hopefully just going to get one to three inches of snow. And it's not going to last very long. Oh, you are lucky. We may get one to three inches of ice, and that's not good. But, you know, I haven't heard a revised um, forecast, so it could all change. Who knows? So, we got what's going on with us today. What are we going to talk about? Well, uh, it was President's Day yesterday, so we got some presidential matters to discuss related to gardening, of course. But first... right. I'm hearing rumors and seeing stuff online that you've harvested mushrooms already. I did. I uh, I bought two of those mushroom tabletop farms, and I harvested my first oyster mushrooms day before yesterday, and it caused quite a stir on Instagram and on Facebook when I shared them because they were so beautiful. And so how long was it from setting up that kit until you harvested that beautiful oyster mushroom? About two weeks. I don't have the exact date, but about two weeks. That's incredible. And I say beautiful oyster mushroom because it was beautiful, even though I'm not really a big fan of mushrooms. So was it easy? It was easy to grow the oyster ones. I'm still waiting for the chestnut mushrooms to break dormancy or whatever it is mushrooms do. So I'm waiting on those, and I hope they work too. But right now, the oyster mushrooms look like a bouquet. They were so pretty. And I cooked them up with a little butter, a little garlic, a little olive oil, salt, pepper, and thyme. And I kind of fried them until they were crisp. You know, I sauteed them, but I made them stick to the pan so they got crisp. They were amazing. My son even thought they were amazing, and he doesn't like mushrooms. So I've got to say, growing your own once again is the best. So if you had little kids, and I'm thinking about my niece has a little four-year-old, and he loves to garden. So would growing oyster mushrooms inside be a good project for kids? I think so, because it's like radishes. It's super fast. You know, literally, you mist them every day. You put them on, you put them on a tabletop or somewhere that can get wet beneath, because they do get a little bit wet underneath. And then you, all you do is mist them. They're in a bag with these sticks... And that's the sticks are to keep the bag off of the mushroom compost stuff. And you spray them every day, at least once a day. And mine were growing in two weeks. And I'm getting ready to harvest some more because I have more now. Well, I'm going to tell her about that because I think that would be a great project for kids because it's something that you do every day that's fairly easy, miss the mushrooms. And you get a harvest fairly quickly so they don't lose their attention really quick. And then you might be able to get them to try to grow, to eat something that they normally wouldn't eat. All good. It's all good. And I think you could get them to do that. And by the way, in our show notes, um, we're going to link to the mister I use. It is not a plant mister. It's actually for hair. And I bought it through, I bought it through Amazon, but it's a beauty mister. And you, when you depress the nozzle, it keeps spraying. It's pretty amazing. It has a very fine mist. And I chose it over a plant mister because it mists better. And I use it on my house plants too. Somehow. And then once again, where did you buy your mushroom kits from? I bought, I'm glad I have the catalog right here. 
I bought them from a company called Field and Forest Products. And they have a lot of different um, options. Mine were the tabletop farms. I mean, you can buy all kinds of things. You can buy spore and you can do your own inoculation. But I, this was my first time, so I wasn't going to try all that. I started, they've already done all that for you. Literally, it's like plug and play. The easiest thing I've done in forever. Okay. Well, we'll put a link to them in our show notes as well in case anybody's interested in that. Right. And we got nothing for this. It's not like they, I mean, I paid for the kits. Yes. And they weren't cheap. But I've enjoyed the heck out of it. We've all enjoyed it. My family is used to me growing vegetables and things, but this was a whole new deal. And it actually got my family interested, which is huge because my family is not that interested in what I do. Very good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move right along for our flower topic. And so in honor of President's Day, we were thinking about flowers that are named after presidents. Mm -hmm. And so the most common flower named after presidents, it seems, well, is the rose. And I know there's a Mr. Lincoln rose that's a real deep red because it was one of my dad's favorites. And I know there's Uh a John Kennedy that's white. John F. Kennedy. It's a greenish white. And I am sure that there are other lovely roses that are named for presidents that I cannot think of right now. Well, there's one named for President Herbert Hoover. It was a hybrid tea. It's an old one from 1928, believe it or not. He was not a real popular president, but there you go. Um, And there's also some bourbon roses. There's a bourbon rose. There's a hybrid tea named after President Lincoln, but there's also one called Souvenir du President Lincoln, which is a bourbon, and that means it's pink and got a big open rose. And then there's also one that I grow. I've grown both uh, President Kennedy and I've also grown Abraham Lincoln, but a long time, and I don't have them in my garden anymore. They're they're not they're hybrid teas, and we can talk about that later. Um, but the Jefferson rose, have you heard of that one? Because I grow I have that not. one still. Okay, so the Jefferson rose was found on the side of the road in Jefferson, Texas. So it's really named after Jefferson Road, I'm sure. But when I first got it, I thought it was named after Thomas Jefferson. Um, I could, I would still say it kind of is, um, but its real name is probably Softy. S-O-F-T-E-E. It's an old rose that was found again. So that's kind of cool. That is kind of cool. So, D, some of our listeners might not realize that you have a rather extensive collection of roses around your garden. Well, I did. I had over 100, and then Rose Rosette disease came and knocked out all but 20. That was 80 roses I lost. And so that, that was a rough five years. But... I'm growing roses again. I got rose rosette disease completely out of my garden, and yeah, now I'm growing some more roses. And some lived. That's good. 20 is still like 19 more than me. Okay. (laughs) I probably have 30 now. Okay, so you have 29 more than me. I have one at the moment (laughs) that I can think of. What do you have? I have... Which uh, rose? I have the Proven Winners uh, Shrub Rose that's called At Last... It's a oh, yeah. pretty corally orange color, and the reason they call it at last is because at last it has a scent because shrub roses are notoriously scent-free, which if you're going to grow roses, mm-hmm. which are beautiful flowers, if you don't get the scent, what's the point? Well, yeah. I mean, the problem, the problem is that scent and roses 
rose disease resistance are um, probably not genetically on the same, you know, the same stream. Right. So if you want disease resistance, it's really hard to find one that's scented, but they're getting there. They've got a few now that have a light tea fragrance. So, so okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you five questions about your rose growing, and then every couple of shows, well, I'll ask you five more, and by the end of the year, we'll have... Our readers will be experts on roses according to D. <laughs> roses according to D. Yeah, I've grown them a long time. So uh, my first question is actually that. When did you start growing roses, and what is your favorite? Oh, gosh, what is my favorite? That's a hard question to answer, but I can tell you when I first started growing them. I was 19 years old. I was 19. Wow. They were the first uh, three plants that I ever grew outside of house plants. Right. So I started right. out with house plants when I was young. I did macrame. That's right, dear millennial friends. You did not create macrame. My mother was really good at macrame, and so was I. And so I loved doing it, and I grew house plants first. And then I grew uh, roses next. So the first, I can tell you what they even were. You want to hear what they were? I do. Okay, I got them at Walmart. That's no, no lie. You know, those bag roses at Walmart, which by the way, don't buy those. They're terrible. But at the time I didn't know that. So I bought three roses. One was, one was a hybrid tea called double delight, which is beautiful. It's red and white and it's really not easy to grow. And then there was Tiffany. Um, and Tiffany was also a hybrid tea, a very famous hybrid tea. Also not that easy to grow. And then the other one was Queen Elizabeth, which was a grandiflora. Now, I didn't know any of this back then, but it was a grandiflora. And actually, I grew Queen Elizabeth for years and years. So I got started when I was 19 years old, and I lived in a mobile home, and I had three rose bushes in the ground. Very good. And here's a bit of trivia for you. I actually remember when Double Delight came out, and I think it came out the spring that I graduated from high school, because I remember getting the catalog and thinking, oh, I really like that, in 1977. It's one of the prettiest roses that they ever created. Not very disease-resistant, but beautiful. So you talked about the uh, Double Delight is obviously a hybrid tea, mm-hmm. and Queen Elizabeth is a floribunda. No, Grandiflora. I'm sorry, Grandiflora. It's a Grandiflora. Mm-hmm. In fact, it create they created that class just for Queen Elizabeth. But go ahead. So... There are all different types of roses, and I'm clearly not a rose expert. My dad just basically grew hybrid teas, and I I grow a few shrub roses, as in my history of them is I plant them, I decide that I don't like them anymore, I dig them out, and then something comes along and, oh, I'll try that one. So I'm basically growing one at a time and then not exactly as annuals, but until I get tired of them. So tell us about types of roses you can grow. Okay, there are so many different types of roses out there. It would take a whole show just to discuss that. But, um, of course, there's the hybrid tea class, and it's called that because it was created from the tea rose class. That's where it came from, is a hybrid tea. There is the shrub rose, which is also called the modern garden rose. There are English roses, which are David Austin roses, um, bourbon roses, and there's polyanthas, noisettes. Oh, there's so many different kinds. But I do have a little bit of trivia about one class of rose that's interesting. Tell us about it. Okay. 
Noisette, the Noisette Rose class was cre- is the only rose class that was created in the United States. And so it's a very special class that is near and dear to my heart. You would have trouble growing it because it tends to only be hardy to zone, uh, probably zone six. And so aren't you zone five? Well, I've been reclassed to zone six when they redid the map several years ago. So it would be uh-huh. eh, right in there. It might make it. It'd be right on the yes. cusp. It might be root hardy. Yeah, not, yeah, it might be root hardy, which most of the noisettes are on their own roots. They are not, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of, you know, where they're put together. They're not, they're on their own roots instead of being grafted. Grafted, thank you. I could not think of the word. So they, you might actually be able to grow them, but they were developed, I want to say down in South Carolina by a doctor, but listeners don't hold me to that because I could be wrong. I know it was a doctor. It was South Carolina or North Carolina. Anyway, wonderful class of roses, and they tend to be in the yellow and ivory color range. Interesting. And interesting that they, it's a French-sounding name, Noisette, even though it was uh, American-bred. Interesting. Yeah, he bred them from a French rose, and I think that's why it's called. It may be, maybe they're named after him. I don't know. I didn't do any research for this episode. This is all surprises. <laughs> no, well, you know, we keep it real. We, we do we'll keep it real. Keeping it real. <laughs> So I know that Rose Rosette was a big devastation, obviously, to lose four-fifths or more of your roses to this disease had to be heartbreaking. So tell us a little bit about that. And, you know, I think what we'll do is you've written about this on your blog, and we're going to link to that post so people can read more about it. Yeah, there's a post of me crying. There's pictures of me crying on the blog, actually, because I'm pulling down one of my old roses that was a climber. And it was climbing old blush, and I had had it in my garden for 25 years, and it died of rose rosette. And that that was like uh, midway through or toward the end of the rose rosette crisis, maybe two-thirds of the way through. Let's just talk for a second about what rose rosette is. Okay. Um, I was the second person in the United States to write about it. Um, The first person was Nan Andra that she blogged about it in her garden. And that's how I found out what I had in my garden. And nobody was talking about it yet. Um, I personally think rose uh, hybridizers didn't want to talk about it because, you know, it's pretty devastating. It's a virus, and it's, uh, it's, it's spread by this mite that's a wingless mite, but in Oklahoma the wind blows all the time. So it comes off of a rose originally, the virus is in a rose called Rosa multiflora that was brought over from Japan, and that rose was used as hedgerows back east. Yes. You know. Oh, yeah, we've got it everywhere. Hedgerows, right? So, Because it's a thorny, thorny rose. Well, that rose has a terrible problem, and because of that, it got spread all over the United States. I don't think it's made it um, – I haven't checked on it recently, but I don't think it's made it way west of Oklahoma. But Oklahoma was devastated. Texas was devastated. Um, the Fort Worth, Dallas area, Tulsa, Oklahoma was devastated, and even further north. So it's a terrible virus. They called it AIDS for roses, and that's what it was. And you have to just dig up the bush and get rid of it. And don't put it in your compost pile, and don't go, you know, bag it, because you don't want to spread it everywhere else, too. So Okay, well, that's good advice. And we will, like I said, we'll link to the article on your website so that people can read about it and they can see it, and then they could watch to see if maybe they have it in their own garden. And sad to say, they would just have to dig it up. Yeah. And throw it away. 
Right. And quick, quick action, quick action is the best thing you can do. Because if you, if you wait, it's going to spread to every rose you have. I didn't wait and I still lost 80. That's a lot. Um, and it was very, very sad, but it, you know what? It made me branch out more and plant different things. And I'm really happy with some of the native plants I put in my garden, which I also talked about on the blog. Well, my fifth question we're, um, we're going to talk about at a future episode, and that is companion plants for roses. Because late in the season, roses can look, well, they can look spent. They can look a pretty raggedy. Yeah. And so there are some good companion plants for roses that we should talk about in a future episode. Sounds great. I'd love to talk about that. And I would agree. I mean, our summers are hard on them. You know, it's hard. They they don't really like continental climate summers. So the United States is is very, very hard on its roses. So you got to, you know, you got to pop true. them up with other things. And so that makes me think of how are we going to segue to vegetables from presidents to roses to vegetables? You know, there's a cabbage rose. But let's not talk about the cabbage rose. Let's talk about cabbages and other vegetables. <laughs> okay. You talk about cabbages. I find them impossible to grow in, in Oklahoma. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. So you and I have both visited probably the most famous presidential vegetable garden outside of the White House garden, which I have never seen. Yeah, we have. I don't think we went there together, though, no, did we? No, we were there separately. I didn't think so. We've both been to Thomas Jefferson's home in Charlottesville, Virginia, and we have both been to uh, Monticello, as we call it here in Indiana. I don't know if you say Monticello, but we've both been there. I say Monticello. And that is the largest vegetable garden I've ever seen, and it's been under continuous cultivation pretty much since the days of Thomas Jefferson. Because it's always had a staff. Unfortunately, some of that staff have been slaves. Yeah, in the back back in the day, they were enslaved people. But now, of course, people are hired to help take care of it. But the idea that Thomas Jefferson was down there in the dirt digging and grubbing for all his vegetables, uh, no. No, that did not happen. He was... He, he was too busy designing things, and but he was very, very interested in his garden. I don't want to take anything away from President Jefferson as far as being, he loved gardening. Yes. He thought it was great. But it certainly helped to have a huge staff to do it for yes. you. Yes. You know, you could introduce a new vegetable. So right. He introduced a lot of new vegetables. Yes, he brought. From all over the world. He brought peppers from Mexico, figs from France, and a lot of bean varieties that were collected in the Lewis and Clark expedition. Basically, Thomas Jefferson was a great, uh, if not a hands-in-the-dirt gardener. He was a very big advocate for gardening and bringing in new fruits and vegetables and flowers and trees. And he would try to grow everything there in his uh, plantation. Right, he did. And also, now, I don't know if this is true. Did he popularize eating of tomatoes? Is that a, a rumor or is that the truth? I have no idea on that, Dee. Now, you caught me by surprise. I think I read, I, <laughs> I think I read that somewhere that he, um, you know, people knew about tomatoes, but because they are a nightshade, like potatoes and some of our other veggies, people were afraid to eat them. But I want to say that he actually kind of popularized eating them. I know he did it for a whole bunch of different things because people would come to his house and have dinner and he would say, here, try this new broad bean I have or whatever, right. you know? And so he was always doing that. How nice to have people that 
helped him grow it. Well, and in the, also, I mean, I think there's a little bit of friendly competition amongst him and other uh, plantation owners about who had the first garden peas of the spring. Yes, he's well known for that. And But he wasn't our only founding father that loved uh, farming and gardening and growing vegetables. I can think of another George one. Washington. Absolutely. And you've been there too, haven't you? I have not been to his, no, I haven't been there. You've not been to Mount Vernon? No. Oh, I loved Mount Vernon. I'll be honest, I like Monticello and I've been there twice, but I really loved Mount Vernon. Maybe I'm a farmer at heart, you know? Maybe you are. You know, I'm distantly related to George Washington, so I should just go and call on the old home folk. Yeah, there you go. One thing I remember about Mount Vernon that was interesting is that they painted, they painted something, they painted the wood to look like stone because, you know, we had plentiful forests in the United States, right. but we didn't have a lot of stone. And it was much more expensive, and he didn't have that much money. So anyway, Washington was quite the farmer, too. And I think he and Jefferson probably talked about gardening. They probably did. Now, one of our presidents made a particular vegetable famous. He did, and he really got lambasted for it, too. It wasn't because he liked it. (laughs) George H.W. Bush is credited with basically, uh, he said, no more broccoli on Air Force One. Yeah, he didn't want it in the White House. He didn't want it on Air Force One. He did not want to look at it, and he made people very angry about that. Especially (laughs) if your livelihood depended on growing broccoli. Yeah, that yeah, the broccoli concert were really mad at him. But, you know, I guess everybody has the right to not like a particular vegetable, but I do like broccoli. I like broccoli, too. Steamed with a little butter. Mmm. I like it also. So, <laughs> cauliflower, too. <laughs> and here's another trivia fact for it, but it didn't get as much press. Um, apparently, Barack Obama doesn't like beets. Oh, Really? Yeah, so President Obama didn't like beets. So he must have kicked beets off the Air Force One. Bring back the broccoli. He kept it on the down low, though. He didn't talk about it much because he didn't want to probably fade the heat that that Bush did over broccoli. Exactly. Lesson (laughs) learned. So, Dee, we both love broccoli. Do you grow broccoli? I have grown broccoli in the past. I've not been terribly successful with it. It gets... I mean, if I have one of our long springs, it does okay. If I have one of our short springs, it immediately goes to flower. But I've even eaten it when it's starting to flower. Like you go out there and suddenly Uh you're starting to see yellow. Yes. I have chopped that off and brought it in and eaten it just like that. I don't think people realize that you can do that with a lot of things. The problem here and why I've stopped growing it, but I'm going to grow it again and I'll tell you why. Because... Uh, the European cabbage moth, which is a white yeah. moth that floats around the garden. Yeah, and you think, I've oh, got how them. pretty. No, and then it lays eggs at the base of broccoli and the base of cauliflower and the base of cabbage. And those eggs hatch and become little green caterpillars. That and I don't voracious. care how much you do. <laughs> when you bring in a head of broccoli oh. to the kitchen... You better soak it in salt water and rinse it till the cows come home. And you're still going to end up with one of those little green worms on your plate. <laughs> Yuck. You know what? That's why I don't grow cabbage. That's why. I mean, I've grown it as a trap crop for other things, um, just for those stupid cabbage worms. I hate those things. You know, but there are ways to grow it and not have those worms. And, and the main way, by the way, 
is to cover them with a, a horticultural cloth. So water gets in, sunlight gets in, but those doggone caterpillars can't get down to the base of the plant. So you have um, to wait in my, I don't know about your state, but if I use row covers here, I have to be sure and put down bricks or stones all around them because we have such wind, especially in the spring, that they blow off. But yes, it does work, although you're going to get a few anyway because somehow they get underneath there. But, yes. you know, it's, it is the best way to try to grow it. And also, do you know what, when you do row covers like that, the horticultural cloth, do you know what sunlight, you know, because there's different types. There's weightier ones that block out more sunlight. Do you do the lighter weight ones? I use as thin a one as I can find because I'm, I'm only interested in keeping those bugs away. Right, right. The other thing that I've done is the, the caterpillar lays the eggs at the base of the plant, and they said if you can protect the base of the plant, for example, like cut off a little one- or two-inch stub of a paper towel roll, the, the cardboard roll, and if you kind of stick the plant in there when you plant it, that cardboard roll is supposed to help protect the stem and keep the moth or the caterpillar from getting to it. Hmm. And that was, I tried that, and it was mildly successful over time that that cardboard's going to just sort of disintegrate. So I'm going to, but but I'm going to try it again this spring. I've been out searching for seeds. I'm going to try the broccoli cauliflower. I'm going to do it. I'm going to row cover it. I'm all excited. Okay. Okay. I can't wait to see how it goes. You know why I'm all excited? Can you also use, can you use little pieces of copper? Yes. I've heard of people using. Have you ever done that? I've heard of people using that. That, that seems kind of expensive. Yeah. I wonder if aluminum foil would work. Anyway, I don't know. Why are you excited? Well, because, um, anytime we think about these topics and I start researching them, I'm thinking, and my dad used to bring in such beautiful heads of broccoli. Of course, he used chemicals that I'm never going to use. But I thought, oh, I want to grow them again. <laughs> and then I opened up yeah. I opened up the early spring edition of Country Gardens Magazine arrived. They got a whole article on a guy that grows broccoli and made it look so pretty. Huh. Oh, neat. Well, I'm not going to. You enjoy. Thanks. I'm not doing that. Thanks. <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> As you know, my garden is going to be all about tomatoes peppers and eggplant this year and uh basil and that's pretty much it because all of those things mature later and when would i harvest broccoli in oklahoma when do you harvest broccoli well what month we would probably i'm hoping that if i get the seeds started this week i'm hoping that i'll be harvesting broccoli sometime in june in june that's right because i would be harvesting it about the same time and i won't be here much in june so i'll be flying Flying, 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 flying to the Garden Bloggers Fling, flying to England, and also driving to Missouri. So June is out. Well, I'll be uh, I'll be here harvesting uh, broccoli, and I'm also thinking, you know, I'm so into it right now. I'm going to try spring crops with broccoli, cabbage, maybe cauliflower. I'm not sure about cauliflower. And then it's harder. Then, in looking at some of the varieties, like there was a variety called um, Happy Rich Broccoli that was mentioned in the magazine uh-huh. article. But when I looked it up online, a lot of people didn't get it to form any uh, broccoli heads. It was just all yeah. leaves. And no. but they said if you fall planted it, 
and you got it to over winter, uh, it actually forms them in the spring. And so I'm just like thinking, hmm, maybe I'll do something really crazy like try to overwinter broccoli in Indiana. Okay, that's just some cray-cray talk there. But, you know, whatever you want to do. <laughs> don't. Why are you making your life so hard? I don't. Just, Remember, we're lazy. We're lazy. Girl. I know, but I want to try it. I want to try it. Ah, okay, well, I will not rain on your parade. That's right. I'll ship you some broccoli after I harvest. Oh, I'd love to have some broccoli. I see you drinking out of a mug that I'd like to have. Yes. Should you tell Should you tell our listeners about your delightful mug? Well, I got a delightful mug here, and it just happens to have the logo for the Garden Angelus podcast on it. Imagine that. <laughs> Next, you'll have T-shirts, too. Yes, all right. This is mug is two of a kind. I'll be sending you yours um, here in a little bit once I get okay. myself to the post office. You heard that, folks. We'll see if she gets to the post office. I think she likes going to the post office about as much as I do. I love going to the post office. That's a whole other story. So... <laughs> Broccoli is it, and if any uh-huh. listeners have some other growing tips for me as I go back out there and try to grow broccoli again, they can send them to us at thegardenangelist at gmail.com. But before we leave, we got something else presidential to talk about. Yeah, we got some dirt. We got some dirt. If you are interested in the president's gardens and their impacts on the White House gardens in particular— we recommend that you pick up Marta McDowell's book, All the, Gar- All the President's Gardens, Madison's Cabbages to Kennedy's Roses. And Marta McDowell, who we have both met, is a great historian and a great gardener, and she has written some marvelous books. And I think this one is just chock full of interesting information about the White House gardens and then about the presidents and sometimes their preferences and the first ladies. And the first ladies, because it wasn't President Kennedy who gave a flying flip about the Rose Garden at the White House. It was Mrs. Kennedy. Exactly. Just like President Obama doesn't really like beets, but Michelle Obama had a kitchen garden, which is now still kept up, kept up by the current first lady. So, you know, the women. I, I'm speaking yes. for the women today. That's very nice. Well, you know what's interesting is in the book, she found and she listed the first seed order for the White House Gardens, and it was put in, I think, by Dolly Madison for James Madison, and it's a list of seeds, and it was for fall planting. And so there's like, I don't know, four or five different cabbages, several radishes, uh, endive, carrots, beets beets, parsnips, and she lists two broccolis, a white broccoli and a purple broccoli. Ooh, purple broccoli would be pretty. But it would it would turn green when you cooked it. Probably. Although there is a purple vegetable that stays purple when you cook it. Yeah, are you talking about the carrots? No. Well, I'm so no, they do stay purple, although they usually yeah. have a yellow center. The sugar magnolia pea has a purple pod that stays purple when you cook it. Kind of purple. I mean, it's dark. It's, yeah. I grew it last year. Did you grow it last year? I did. It stays purple. As yeah. As purple as it's going it to stay. Kind of, kind of purpley green. But, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not try- I'm not trying to be difficult. <laughs> yes, you are. It <laughs> no, stays purple. 
Okay, anyway, I'm, I'm so I've been researching purple cabbage or purple broccoli and white broccoli, and uh, I can find a little bit of purple broccoli, and I might uh-huh. try some, but I cannot find white broccoli. And I wonder if white broccoli was what they called cauliflower. I bet it was. I bet it was because they probably didn't differentiate. Although cauliflower is one of the oldest grown vegetables of you know mankind but i bet they didn't differentiate no i bet they called that was what cauliflower and in fact um they said that some of the seeds weren't available and she quotes them as saying that um the seed seller guy enclosed a note said um apologizing that the peas the cauliflower and the salsify were not at present available and I didn't see cauliflower on the list, so that must be what white cabbage was, or white broccoli was. <laughs> white broccoli, yeah. Um, they're related, but they are not the same plant. And you know that, and I know that, and most of our listeners know that. But exactly. maybe they were called that at the time. That's, that could be. This list is from 1809, so it's over 200 years old. Yeah, it's an old one. So I have a rose book to suggest. Oh, wait, wait, we're not there yet. I'm sorry. I jumped ahead. We have another we're book. There. Well, we were going to talk about Founding Gardeners. Yes, Founding Gardeners is also a great book. Yeah, it's, it talks about our founding fathers and um, how they shaped the American nation. So it's the Founding Gardeners, the Revolutionary Generation, Nature, and the Shaping of the American Nation by Andrea Wolfe. And I like her books, too. They're really good books. Yes, and for those people that are in the Indianapolis area, Andrea Wolf is coming to speak at Newfields. Um, I believe it's on Sunday, May the 9th. And there's going to be, I think, a, a tea or a luncheon. And then she has a talk that's free and open to the public. And it would mm. be well worth going. And I will be there with a stack of her books for her to sign. Wow. I so wish I could go to that. Really Come on do. out to Indiana. Oh, I'll just jump right up there, you know, because I love Indiana this time of year. It will be May. It won't be oh, this time well, of year. I'll be honest. I like um, Oklahoma in May. I would not leave because that's when my roses are blooming. Yay. Girl. So Yay. what book are you going to recommend about roses? Okay, so I grow my roses pretty much organically. And I say pretty much because when you get roses, unless you order from an organic nursery, they're not going to be completely organic, Right. So right. what? there's usually some fertilizer in there, and I'm sure that they've been sprayed at the nurseries. But from the time they reach my house, they don't get sprayed because I don't do that anymore. Haven't done it in about 30 years, 25. And then on top of that, um, everything I feed them is pretty much organic. So the, the book I'm going to recommend is kind of a obscure one, sort of. Liz Druitt probably doesn't think so because she wrote it. But it's called The Organic Rose Garden, and it's one of my favorite books. And it's not a brand new one, and you can buy it used for really good prices, like from $2.50 online. And it's just The Organic Rose Garden by Liz Druitt, and she gives you some ideas on how to grow roses organically, which isn't as hard as people think it is. You want to know the top tip? What's the top tip for rose growing? The The top tip for rose growing organically by disease-resistant roses. All righty. Duh. Okay. I mean, truly, I mean, that sounds simple, but they're kind of hard to find. You have to kind of search for them. So um, I talk about that a lot on my blog. In fact, I'll probably write another post about it. 
Anyway, Very that's my good. tip. Okay. Well, Dee, that's all we have for today. I have really enjoyed talking with you about gardening today. Me too. It was fun. I'm sort of getting the itch, man. I cannot oh, wait. Yeah. Oh, me too. So, uh, as per usual, our listeners can email us questions at thegardenangelist at gmail.com. We'll put that address in our show notes. We are on Instagram, we are on Facebook, and we are on Twitter as The Garden Angelist. And so people can reach out to us there as well. We usually drop our latest episodes on Tuesday nights late. And we are weekly. If you subscribe on iTunes... Give us a thumbs up if you can, a five-star rating. We'll just ask for it. Give us a five-star rating. The more ratings we get, the higher up we go in search rankings and things like that. More people listen to The Garden Angelus. Yay. And that's all exciting. Hey, didn't you get us on somewhere new this week? Uh, We are now on Google Play. That's right. We're on Google Play. So you can also listen to us there if you have an Android phone. Anyway, we're so glad you came and visited with us over the garden gate today. Have a beautiful afternoon. Bye. Bye. Bye.